You know, the living God continues to give us incredible opportunities <clears throat> to get his message into the community. This past week, we had a ministry to Queen, Queen Elizabeth School with uh, 40-some kids, uh, Pastor Calvin and Rebecca and their team, um, ministering the gospel at a basketball camp. And um, we just, God is, God is giving us um, unusual favor and opening doors that we would have never anticipated. Uh, this is a time of, of sowing the seed of the gospel and anticipating harvest. And we just believe that you want to get in on this. And you may not have been part of the announcements, but we need your help to, to really get involved uh, with the story, the Easter presentation that's coming our way. If each of you were to bring just one lost person, we would pack the place out two nights it wouldn't be a place for anyone. That, just one lost person. Uh, don't go and try and find someone who loves the Lord with all of their heart. There's another opportunity for that. We'll have a, we'll have a glory festival here on other times. But, but Easter, uh, these presentations, um, do your best to, uh, to ask the Lord to open up a door of opportunity for you to speak to someone, to invite someone, uh, and believe that God is going, to resp- is going to draw their hearts to say yes Let's, take, let's get the courage to do that and, and get in on this. Get in on what God is doing because he is doing great things. And I don't know what kind of time we have left, but um, um, this is the, the time for sowing the gospel. This is our time. So let's be busy while the Lord gives us opportunities and let's not, let's not miss any of those. Uh, let's open in prayer. Our Father, um, before we uh, open up the word of God this morning and... Uh, share what you have for us, what the message is. I just ask again that you would visit us with your power and presence in a powerful way, Lord. Uh, we, we do not, uh, we're, we're hungry, Lord, for you. We're, we're anxious for you. We, we long to um, cooperate with the transforming work that you want to do in our lives and our hearts. We're, we're, um, burdened for our region, Lord. We're, we're burdened for our neighbors and people around us, Lord, as we just look at the masses of people and in our hearts, are, as they're aching, we realize that, that most of them don't know you and most of them are on a pathway to eternal destruction. And, Lord, we have this amazing message that you have given to us as ambassadors of reconciliation. And I just pray, Father, that, that you would fill up our lives and our hearts with a with an overflow of desire to make you known. Father, um, w- we think about that, that choir song this morning, that, that when they see us, are they seeing your heart? Because, Lord, that's what they're anticipating, that, that we reflect your heart. And, Father, your heart is a heart of outreach. Your heart is a heart of salvation. Your heart is a heart of mercy. And, Lord, if we have your heart, that's what our heart is like. And I pray that um, because of that, you would cause us to be stirred up, stirred up in our own lives, dissatisfied with anything that's less than your best for us, Lord. And as you are building something here, as you are rebuilding our hearts and rebuilding faith, I pray, Father, that um, the outworking of that would be an amazing harvest, a rich harvest. So, Lord, I pray that you bless the efforts of our outreach, not for any other reason 
then our desire is that the Christ who died for us would be honored and glorified and praised in this community. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Now I ask that you would take this message and, and really move our hearts with it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Boker Tov! Some of, you, uh, some of you learned something last week, and uh, I'm glad to hear that, of course. Uh, for those of you who weren't here, that's Hebrew for good morning. Very good. Morning good. And, uh, of course, Pastor Duane is preaching tonight, and I don't know where he went to. He was here a few minutes ago. Did he have an assignment, or was it just because I was preaching? <laughs> is that what happened? Anyway, here's the challenge. Pastor Duane is preaching tonight, so we'll challenge him with his Hebrew and see what he can produce with in terms of a greeting uh, this evening. Well, as you turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 5, and we're almost uh, halfway, getting to the halfway place in the book, not quite there, but, but getting there, uh, I thought uh, in light of the, the uh, break for Easter, or break for uh, spring break, excuse me, and, and uh, all of that, that maybe we should catch up on just where we've been, what this journey's all about. Remember, we're on a journey uh, with God, either to a new adventure that he has for you or rebuilding your faith or somehow restoring your soul, but, but something God is doing in your life. He's doing some special, a, a new work in your life, a, a powerful work in your life, renovating your heart, making sure that you're taking that walkabout in your family and making sure that you're living wholeheartedly for God. And, and uh, Nehemiah is the typical roadmap for when God does that. I, I don't know of another place in the Bible that has a better roadmap for this journey that God would have you on. And if you remember in, in chapter 1, you, in order to be, uh, embark on that journey, you have to sense a need. You have to uh, hear from God and, and realize that there is, uh, recognize some brokenness in your life or whatever. In chapter 2, the early parts of chapter 2, you're seeking confirmation from the Lord. Uh, God zeroing in on exactly what he has for you as you do that walkabout and, and see what's going on. In the later part of chapter 2, there's a, a, a surveying of the damage of your lives and counting the cost of, of what you're up against to, to move forward with God. And then chapter 3 is about finding a community to, to help, to, to get engaged in it, to encourage you, not discourage you, but to keep you going on and, and, and um, challenge you with what God has in your life. And then as we got to chapter 4, we encountered opposition. Whenever you step out for God, whenever he does a great work in your life or is beginning a great work in your life, you can anticipate opposition. And opposition comes in all kinds of, of shapes, sizes, and flavors. And we, we've encountered in chapter 4 at the very beginning, uh, the first opposition is ridicule. And, and the combat for ridicule, people chirping at you and making fun of you and all of that is to simply talk to God. Have God talk to you. Change the conversation. Talk to him. Pray to God. To God, And then the, the latter part of, of chapter 4, the opposition changes to a, a real war of discouragement to try and get you to stop what you're doing. And, uh, uh, of course, we learned in that particular section that you strengthen your support systems and, and, and analyze where you're at and gather around yourself people who will encourage you and help you. And, and by all means, you don't quit. You keep moving forward. You, 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 you spurn the discouragement. Look who just walked in. You spurn the discouragement, and uh, someone will have to fill you in, Mr. Duane. But anyway, you, you, you uh, move forward. Don't quit. Now, the next form of opposition, which we're looking at uh, this morning, uh, won't catch the seasoned believer off guard, 
but it will, in fact, shock, for the most part, those who are new in the faith. I mean, we understand the ridicule from those who are outside, and we understand that the, that the evil one wants to discourage us and, and stop what God is doing in our lives, but what comes as a rude awakening to us and as a real shock is when the opposition comes from inside, inside the community of faith. And that's what we're going to look at in, in Nehemiah chapter 5. From your own community, opposition and sabotage to what God wants to do in your life. Well, that can come for a variety of reasons from within. Uh, simply put, not everybody within is within. Some people are simply living a lie. They really aren't followers of the Lord Jesus Christ at all. There are others within or hiding themselves or harboring themselves within the community of faith who are, who are pronouncing heresy. There, there are those who are out teaching universalism. There are those who are teaching a different gospel. Those are, there are those out there teaching a different Christ. And then there are others within our ranks who are persecuting us and harming their own brothers and sisters, usually for selfish gain. The rot within can be more destructive than the rats outside. In fact, James Boyce, a pastor who's now with the Lord, pastor of a great church in Philadelphia, made this pronouncement. It was his, his belief that there is more, uh, that, that um, internal opposition is a greater cause and the greatest cause of opposition in, Christ, in all of Christianity, in all of the church world. And he might be right, sadly. The rejecting of genuine Christianity by those who are living out a form of, God, on, uh, a form of godliness but lack the power uh, thereof. Uh, there are, uh, of course, they're not the real thing. And they're among us. There are others who are the real thing but they're still causing damage to one another because of disregard for the word of God. And what's God's word to it? I, I noticed that at the very center of the text we're going to look at this morning, there is really a pronouncement uh, of God uh, on, on what he, uh, um, on how he would describe this reality. And, and, and it goes this way. What you are doing is not right. Now, um, for any of us who've been walking with God for any number of years, the last thing we would ever want to hear God say or pronounce over us or anything that we're engaged in, what you are doing is not right. Uh, among us, what we really want to hear from the Lord Jesus Christ is well done, good and faithful servant, right? That's what we long to hear from the Lord. That's, that's the pronouncement that we long to hear him say over our lives individually and over our lives as a church community. What we want uh, above all things is for God to say that about us. Well done, good and faithful servant. But it really catches our attention, I hope, when God says, what you are doing is not right. So we better look in the text this morning and find out exactly what it is that God says is not right. Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, 
and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses. And also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who's, who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But... The earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over, over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, O oh my God, for all I have done for these people." This is the word of God to us this morning as uh, he wants to challenge our hearts. So the comment from the word of God here is what you are doing is not right. And it f it's followed up by shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God? And furthermore, shouldn't it concern you that you're a reproach to those outside of faith? These two things, these Actually, three ideas put together are a powerful, life-transforming consideration. What you are doing is not right. Should you not walk in the fear of God? And should it not concern you, if you do not, that you are a reproach, that you are bringing a dishonorable reproach to the living God who you claim to love and know and serve? Simply put, Nehemiah is putting it to them. 
that they are dishonoring the glory of God in favor of their own personal glory. And furthermore, they are not paying any attention. They have a cavalier attitude toward the dissension and how that dissension among them plays out on the outside. Don't ever miss the point that if you fly a flag of Christianity, and you must if you truly are one, then the people around you are always watching you. They're always watching how you treat people. They're watching how you treat each other. They're watching how you treat your spouse. And so in this particular case, God says of this community, what you are doing is not right. I want to share with you this morning, or pick out of the text here, three economic principles. Um, and I don't want you to shut down when you hear economic principles and say, well, I don't really care about finances and all that kind of stuff. Let me just say to you that the, that the principles go beyond economics. They go to the treatment of people. And in particular, they go down and drill down to the treatment of people who are in a vulnerable position and situation. And each of us will always encounter people who are in a vulnerable situation. In fact, sometimes it's us, ourselves, how we treat one another. And so can I make this first statement? Well, actually, I'm not making it. I'm quoting Frank Tillepaw when I say the first point is this. There is no point building a semblance of distinctiveness to the outside world if on the inside our treatment of one another is no different from the outside. I think that's a great statement. In fact, it says at the very beginning of this text, there was a great outcry. The people were crying out in distress. And it says, ghastly, against their Jewish brothers. Now, we understand opposition from the evil one. We understand opposition from those who don't understand about our faith. But it is always, always challenging to our hearts when that opposition comes from someone who claims to love the same God we do and serve the same Christ we serve. And so there's this great outcry. And let me say this, a great adventure with God can come to a grinding halt through the mismanagement of each other. And how we mismanage each other over and over again. By the way, this wasn't a sudden problem. This has been building under the surface for a long time. And it says here that even their wives raise their voice. It's one thing when the men finally come to the place where they're saying, enough, there's a problem around here. But once the women start chirping, you know there's really a problem, right, guys? And, and you really, really got to deal with it. So I think there's a stress here. It says the men and their wives were in an outcry, in an outrage. Why were they in this outrage? There were hurts and disappointments that had been brewing that were now all bubbling up. This was a crisis time. In fact, a perfect storm of problems had gathered. And we're going to take them apart and analyze them for a few moments here. But, but words that pop out of the text to me are words like slavery. We've been enslaved. we become powerless. That's not the description for God's people. There should never be an outcry from God's people that we are enslaved, we're slavery, we're powerless. That's not what God saved us for. God saved us to be freed from slavery. God saved us to be powerful in Him. So there's something desperately and drastically wrong here. Well, what was it? 
I, I said to you there's a perfect storm that has happened. The, the first thing that we notice here in the text in verse 3, that there was a famine. That there was a, a, in terms of an economic struggle, it was a real downturn in the economy. The, the, the powerful forces outside of these people, it wasn't, they, they weren't losing um, their land and struggling financially because of laziness. They were struggling because there was a famine, for one thing. And it was challenging them fundamentally in agricultural uh, culture. And so we have this famine, and, and uh, it's relentless. And then we, we look at verse 3, the, the second charge, and we realize that, that they've been frittering away their property just to get food. They were mortgaging their property. Listen, whenever you start selling assets for operations, you are in a really bad situation. Doesn't take too much of a financial mind to know that. That when you start selling off your stuff just to live, you are eventually going to wind down to the place where you have nothing left and you're not going to live. That's why this was an outcry and it was urgent. But on top of that, they talk about the high taxes. The Persian tax system was killing them. You, you can't find this in the scriptures, but uh, if you take a, a journey into history, you will find out that when Alexander the Great finally conquered Persia... Uh, when he finally conquered this capital city of Persia, Susa, uh, they discovered, the Greeks discovered, that the Persians had been hoarding 270 tons of pure gold and 1,200 tons of pure silver. But the thing is, the way they acquired the gold and the way they acquired the silver was by pulling currency out of the, the surrounding markets they had occupied and melting it down to, to, to build up the Federal Reserve. Well, again, you don't have to be too much of an economic rocket scientist to know that if you take capital, if you take currency out of the marketplace, inflation is going to soar. And it was, it's described that in history that the inflation rate at this particular time was in the range of 50%. So you've got a famine. You've got people leveraging their property, uh, selling off their assets for operations. You've got high taxes. You've got inflation. And on top of that... Their countrymen, supposedly the brothers and sisters, the people who loved them and cared about them, were now taking their children as collateral because all of the property was gone, everything was gone. Now they're taking their labor force and taking that away from them. So now they didn't have the kids to work the fields anymore. This whole thing is a complete disaster. Now, um... I don't know if you've ever personally experienced economic hard times. I suspect most of us have. I, I went through a long period of unemployment, and it was just distressful beyond, beyond imagination. It is hard to engage in advancing a community dream when you're on the edge of financial ruin. No land, no job. No social safety net then, for sure. No prospects. And here's where we go with this thing here. They were at the place where if things didn't radically change, they were going to starve to death and die. And the tragedy of all of this is the people in the church, in their church, we're going to call it a church, didn't care. They were going to let them die. The air really... It's one thing to be in economic distress 
but the air really gets sucked out of your lungs when the people who are supposed to love you most don't care about your situation. Or worse than that, are making your situation worse. And there's an exclamation mark in my translation in verse 5, or verse 7, sorry, that says, countrymen. In fact, the word is repeated in verse 5. It's about countrymen. It's about our Jewish brothers. It's an emphasis here. See, the rich people can usually weather harsh times. But poor people rarely can. They don't have the reserves. And so it's not right to miss the markers of hardship within the community of faith. And so often we do. So often we ignore or make the matters worse of those who are most vulnerable among us. And so what's the response of Nehemiah? It says here in the text in verse 6, he was very angry. That's a very soft translation. I don't know if we have words to describe how Nehemiah was really translated, should really be translated. He was furious. He was enraged. And, and I know that because, in fact, if you keep reading in verse 6, it says... Um, I was very angry, and to verse 7, I pondered them in my mind. In other words, he wasn't even in good shape to go and talk to anybody. It's like he came home to Mrs. Nehemiah and said, don't talk to me. Don't don't even breathe a word. I, I can't even talk right now. I am so angry at what I just found out today. That I, I'm not ready to talk to anybody. I'm not ready to face anybody. I'm being no good to anybody until I calm myself down. That's what this text is really telling us. And so he does. He calms himself down. Probably prays lots. And then decides to do something about it. And that moves us into the second principle. The well-being of our brothers must always be a priority over our own prosperity. It was right for him to be furious at this social injustice. It should make us angry. As one commentator put it, the people there were acting as pawnbrokers, not brothers of one another. And so what's his response in verse 11? What's his command to them? Give it back. Give it back. The hardship time of the poor among us can be a greater time of testing for the rich, in truth. That's what this was going to amount to. Uh, uh, On on the firing line at this moment was those people who were mistreating the vulnerable among them. I want to to, uh, keep this at a bit of a principle level because I want to keep talking about the vulnerable. I don't want to just talk about finances. I want to talk about taking advantage of vulnerable people within the community of faith in particular. That's the principle here. And so... um, Is this going to be a time of opportunism or service? Should this be a time of impoverishing people further or improving their situation? Uh, what, What is it that we should be considering when we look at these things? It not only looks bad, 
when people are advantaging themselves at the, over the vulnerability of others. It is bad. That's the point here. It's not right. When you are advantaged, when you are advantaged by the hard times of a brother, it is not right. Now, um, how do we... It, it confuses outsiders for one, for one thing. When we sort of ski, seize an advantage over a brother or a sister. For instance, you find out that a, a brother or a sister has some financial distress among you. And you decide to take advantage of the fact that they're selling off things by gouging them for a fire sale price and beating them down. Or, for instance, uh, you know that a brother needs something badly and, so opportun- and you have it, and so opportunistically you keep your price high when you know you could help out. So what's the specific issue here? I, I want to try and draw us back to a, a, a 2013 context every time I can, but we've got to plow back into the text here and find out what the specific issue is. Can I say it in two words? God's word was the issue here. I want you to take a journey with me for a few moments. I want you to come back with me to Exodus chapter 22. Because the question that we have to ask ourselves is that what they were doing, of course, is they were lending people stuff and they were mortgaging and they were charging interest of one another and they were taking people on pledge and they were enslaving their own people. Well, so what's the big deal with all of that? Well, let's find out. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 25, for instance... I love the sound of turning pages of the Bible. However, I know some of you are poking around on electronic, and that's okay too. Just make the poking really loud so I can hear it. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a moneylender. Charge him no interest. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? This is the same Bible they had, by the way. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset. I want you to come with me on the journey into Deuteronomy. It's not like it showed up one time and they said, oh, that's just a remote text. That's just an anomaly in God's word. Well, how about Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19 and 20? Do not charge your brother interest, whether on money or food, or anything else that may earn interest. Straightforward enough? You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a brother Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land you are entering to possess. Now get this. I think what God is doing here is he is saying to his people internally, I'll be the pledge... I'll be your interest. You go ahead and treat each other properly. You go ahead and look after each other. And I'll be the pledge of your blessing. I'll be the pledge of the interest you're giving up. I'll bless you beyond the interest you would get. I'll bless you uh, beyond the, the, the pledge that you're taking. So I think God offers it to his people. Take interest and disobey my word. And not receive my blessing? Or do what I tell you and put me to the test and see if I won't bless you abundantly for abiding by my word, trusting in me to take care of you. 
Well, let's look over at Leviticus 25 for a second. 25, 35 to 40. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and is unable to support himself among you, help him as you would an alien or a temporary resident so he can continue to live among you. Do not take interest of any kind from him, but fear your God. Do you think God was trying to get a message like virtually every book of the Pentateuch over and over and over again? But fear your God. He makes it a fear of God issue. So that your countrymen may continue to live among you. You must not lend him money at interest or sell him food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells himself to you, do not make him work as a slave. He's not to be treated as a hired worker or a temporary resident among you. He's to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Or he is to be treated as a hired worker. In other words, don't enslave him. Employ him. God watches over all of the details of our lives. He is watching particularly over the treatment of the vulnerable. And you can transfer this principle in any forum you like within the context of God's people. The vulnerable are to be looked after and watched out for. And we are to count on God to take care of us in terms of what we may economically be, lo- be losing. So lending then was fine. Go ahead and lend. But charging interest was not. Now you will find out this, of course, is with the poor, those who are desperate and all of that. There was nothing wrong in the, in the Old Testament context with charging interest as a business transaction. Make sure we understand the distinctions here. These are people who are vulnerable, who are down on the situation in life, and people are not within the family of God to advantage themselves or benefit from the hardships of other people. That's the bottom line here. In fact, the terminology that's used here is exacting usury. It's actually um, interesting the way it's, it's impossible to define in the word of God because it just simply means interest but but what does it really mean here he's talking about um, using usury he's talking about usury and usury he uses the word twice he uses a noun and a verb side by side very unusual it's, it's nasha masha uh, dugga 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 mugga whatever you know, I sound like uh, Mr. Guy forget it, it's inside stuff you had to be here on a Sunday night to know what I'm talking about what, what is it? How can we zero in on what probably the math is here? Well, if you look down at verse 11, at the very end, it says the hundredth part. Now, a hundredth part, one one hundredth part is one percent. It is likely that the interest they were charged is one percent per month or 12 percent. And Nehemiah says, give it back. Give it back. How you, basically he throws up his hands and says, how you fear the Lord. Is is this, when did we, when did we stop fearing the Lord in this, in this place? He's standing in Jerusalem and he calls them into his office after he had settled himself down. And he says, when did we stop fearing the Lord around here? When did we, when did we start disregarding his word? When did we start, um, savagely benefiting from the hardships of our brothers and sisters. 
When did we decide that we should become such a reproach to the glory of God in the outside world that, that we would do such a horrible thing? When did we think we should do that? What we are doing is not right. And I want it to stop. And I want you to make reparation. I want you to give it all back. Nehemiah did what we are called to do about sin. And by the way, when you disregard the word of God, when you go against the word of God, you are sinning. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident. It's not an oversight. It's a sin. And what does he do? Matthew 18, 15. Confronts the sinners. If your brother sins against you, go and show him. That's what he does here. He directly stands before them and shows them. And there was silence. There usually is. Because they didn't have a leg to stand on. They knew that what he was saying was exactly true. This is what we've been doing. Now, the Jews were reenacting the captivity style of the pagans. They were adopting their ways, taking their own people into slavery. They had just, they had just been rescued out of Babylon uh, uh, less than a century before. Nehemiah says, what is this? We just bought our people back. And now you are selling them to us and we're having to buy them back again from ourselves? What is wrong with you? What is, what, how has is, how is the, the evil ones so gripped your hearts that you would be unkind and uncaring for those who are down on their, on, on their life? How is it that you would be like that? He's distressed beyond, beyond belief. Why, why does the Lord's compassion go beyond even economic, generous, economic generosity? Why does God even go... Most of us are sitting here, well, the interest, you know, seems fair. Oh, why does God even go beyond that? Listen, listen to me. I, I think the simple truth is this. Poverty within the body of faith is not a class problem. It's a community problem. A solution always benefits the whole community and not just the economically depressed. This is an us problem. Whenever some of us are hurting or vulnerable or, or, uh, or in hardship... It's not a, oh, well, that's just, they're just, they're just poor, they're just, they're just um, um, lesser or whatever. This, this is a, not a, a, a single problem. This is a community problem. God sees us as a community. God sees us as a body. God sees us as a one. He won't let us escape that vision of the people of God, ever. So extreme times... Demand extreme care, writes Kidner. This was not a time for lending, but a time for giving. It's not right to make a business opportunity out of the plight of poorer people. So he says, stop it, correct it, and back it up with a promise to God. You, you see what he says here? It's like, he doesn't say, listen, this is the problem. I'm confronting you with your sin, and I want you to deal with it. They say, oh yeah, we'll deal with it, Nehemiah. Yeah, right, we're going to deal with it. Like, and they walk out. No, no, he says, listen, no. No, no, wait. I know the human heart. I'm going to put this before God in you. You're going to come into an audience and an awareness that you're in an audience with God Almighty. And you're going to make the promise to Him. And that promise is going to include blessings. Because you see, blessings, beloved, are conditional. 
Our salvation isn't conditional. We've been saved by grace through faith. We are saved and saved and saved, and we are kept saved. But blessings are conditional. And so he stands before them and he says, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire. You're going to promise. You've admitted that you've done this. You've admitted that you've broken God's law. I'm going to hold you responsible for that. And you're going to stand before God and say, we're going to change. We're going to give it back. We're going to fix this. And he says, furthermore, and he takes off his coat and he shakes it. And he says, may it be to you like this coat. I'm shaking it out and then emptying it out. He must have turned it upside down and shook his pockets out. And the the slingshot and the frog and everything dropped out of his pocket and everything. And he's shaking it out. And he's saying, "May, may this happen to you if you go back on your promise of what you're making to God this day. May you be emptied. Some bold pastor. Let me just wrap this up with our third point. And some people need to take this lead because it's Nehemiah's lead in verses 14 and following. The third insight that I want to share with you this morning is this. Our place of privilege and plenty. And I want to stop and pause for a second and say that if you are middle class or beyond... In this congregation, you are in a position of privilege and plenty. And compared to the world, you're in a position of incredible privilege and plenty. But even in this congregation, you're in a position of privilege and plenty. While to a certain extent may be earned, it is really awarded by grace. Right? I mean, let's be honest. I'm looking out at a lot of hardworking people. And God has blessed you for your hard work. But quite honestly, if we don't get the point that it's all about grace, we have totally missed the mark. I mean, even the fact that we were born in this country has given us an advantage over most of the world. And so our starting point is graced. And from there on, it's just grace upon grace upon grace. Yes, you worked and God blessed But if you miss the point that your privilege and position are about the grace of God, then you have a challenging journey ahead of yourself. So how we handle our money betrays our grasp of that truth. So what I love about Nehemiah because some of you are saying, wait a second, I think, I think I, if you, when you're reading the text, I noticed that Nehemiah was lending as well. You're right. Verse 10. I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. Do you remember what we said from the word of God? There's nothing wrong with lending. What was wrong is taking advantage through interest. Benefiting yourself. See, when I lend somebody something, I'm not benefiting from that. I'm giving away something I have. It's only if I gain interest out of it that I'm, that I'm benefiting from their hardship. No, no. And in fact, he says, Nehemiah says in verse 15, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. He sets a different standard, Nehemiah does. I didn't, in fact, what he's describing here, if you read it, he says, in the 12 years, I didn't take my food allowance. Now, I want to pause just for a second here 
as our time is going. I want to pause for a second here and make sure you understand that Nehemiah is not writing something so that he can brag and boast. In fact, this is a retrospective he's writing. He's writing back something that the people didn't even know. He never told the people this. He was, he was acting in good faith with God in private between himself and God. He says, listen, I could have taken the governor's food allowance. The guys before all did. But out of reverence for God and understanding the distress of the moment, I opted not to take what I could have had. Why? Because I love God. I care about the glory of God. I care about the honor of God. I noticed that it always placed a heavy burden on the people. I didn't want to make God look bad. I wanted the testimony of God to be good. Now, you the kind of person who tries to get every last cent that is available to you? You know, do you grovel for everything you think you should get, every last penny? Are you the kind of person that counts your change when people give it back to you, the store? I don't. Otherwise, I wouldn't even use this illustration, right? It bugs Lynn no end. I just take the pile of money and put it in my pocket. It, it frustrates because she's a, a type A perfectionist. I don't think she's not greedy. That's why she's just a perfectionist. She, it all has to balance at the end of the day. I don't care if it balances. I'm like, what, 15 cents? What do I care, Lynn? Am I going to get into an argument with a storekeeper? I'm a representative of Christ. I don't care if I got ripped off for 15 cents. I don't know why I'm preaching at Lynn all of a sudden. It's, well, frankly, it's easier to preach at her from here than at home, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but listen, here's the question that we have to ask ourselves as we finalize this. For what purpose of God that is beyond me, myself, and I, do I have this place, this position, this possession, this perk, this privilege? Why? Why do I have this? Why did God grace me with this? For, for what reason? Isn't it to help further God's purposes? Isn't it? So... These were people who were building God's work, having to stay in Jerusalem night and day. They couldn't even go back to their fields. Their kids were now taken off and hauled off as slaves. Nothing was happening. There was a famine. They didn't even have food for their families. He says, I came to make life better, not worse for you. That's what he writes here. I didn't come, he says in, in verse 16, I, I came to be devoted to working on the wall. I didn't come to acquire wealth and riches and, and own properties and, and live in a great big gigantic mansion and look down upon all of you. That's not why I came, Nehemiah says. And furthermore, he put his money where his mouth is. Not only did he not take the governor's allowance, which is amazing, the governor's food allowance, and many of us would have said, well, look, I'm not taking the governor's food allowance, but I also certainly don't have any money for hospitality anymore. You know, I've got to, I, I won't be able to do that. No, no, he says, I was, I, I had 150 people eat at my table every single day, and I also invited the international dignitaries who were to come my way. That's what the food allowance was for. The food allowance was so, so that he could be hospitable and look after people and look after international gala events. He says, I did all of that out of my own money. Because I knew that if I, charged, if, I, if I charged the allowance, it would further burden the people. So I love God, and secondly, I love people. Isn't that, isn't that it? Isn't that it from the beginning of the book to the end of the book? It's about loving God with all of your heart, being zealous for His glory, greedy for His glory, 
and loving your neighbor as yourself. Nehemiah stands tall as a leader who lived what he preached. So, let's face it, there will always be economic inequities. We're not commanded to be socialists. God's not down on wealth. He just wants it redistributed properly. To those who've been given much, it should be normal for them to give much. That's God's economy. That's his finances. It's not right to accumulate more than enough while your brother barely makes it. And he wraps this up by saying this, Remember me, Lord, with favor. Because this was between him and God. He's not saying, oh, please reward me. Look, I did this to get reward. That's not it at all. He's just saying, Lord, you saw how I lived. Most people didn't know this. I took care of the people. God blessed me for it. And it's the same for us. The question that goes out to us is, how have we treated people? How have we represented Christ in the marketplace? Uh, it matters internally here. How have we treated people internally? Have we taken advantage of anybody and their vulnerability ever? Have we tried to benefit ourselves? I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about a guy with a girl. Have you benefited yourself because of her vulnerability? Have you wronged somebody in the community of faith? Have you taken advantage of anybody in the marketplace? Champion the cause of Christ. Don't, listen, don't carry one of these cards around, hand it out to people who you've ripped off. Please just go and hide. Don't even tell them you come to Calvary or that you know Jesus. Nehemiah held their feet to the fire. Stop it. Give it back. And promise to God you'll make it right and never do it again. It's the same for us. He's making the same call to us. Listen, if you expect to reach the region for Jesus Christ and be blessed, we should be blessed way beyond what we are. There are things that we've got to take care of. That's what God's calling us to. Father, I pray this morning as we conclude, Lord, as we bear our hearts, you, you have opened up our hearts. You have peered in. You know what's there. We know what's there. The Word of God is speaking loudly to us. The Holy Spirit has is, is got a megaphone in our ears. Deal with this. Deal with this. That God's blessing may rest on you and your community. So, Father, I pray that this morning. And I pray as uh, we conclude... Uh, to have this time, Lord, to just meditate for a few moments. Lord, you're going to speak to us and we're going to hold our feet to the fire. So we give this over to you this morning for the work of God's Spirit in Jesus' name.